0: Hello from the employees of the Commonwealth Club. Thank you for tuning into this podcast. Before we begin, we'd like to take a moment to acknowledge the international crisis taking place in Ukraine and highlight an organization working to support the most vulnerable of all the victims, the children. Voices of Children is a Ukrainian organization dedicated to ensuring no child is left to deal with the trauma of war alone. Working at the front lines of the Russian invasion in villages along the Donetsk and Luhansk region. Voices of Children provides a variety of services like art therapy, video storytelling, mobile youth psychologists, and more. If you'd like to help or learn more about Voices of Children and their critical work, please visit voices.org.ua slash en.
1: Thank you for listening. Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth
0: Club. Hello and welcome to today's Commonwealth Club event. I'm Cheryl Evans-Davis, Executive Director of the San Francisco Human Rights Commission and your moderator for today. Before we get started, we would like to thank the club's Humanities Member-Led Forum and the Bernard Osher Foundation for supporting today's Good Lit event. I am super pleased to be joined by AJ Bame, author of White Lies, The Double Life of Walter F. White, and America's Darkest Secret. AJ is a best-selling author and a regular contributor to the Wall Street Journal. In his new book, White Lies, AJ recounts the complex biography of civil rights leader and journalist Walter F. White. Born of mixed race, Walter lived a double life and was able to pass as a white American during the tumultuous Jim Crow era. He was able to use his ambiguity to investigate racist murders and help put the NAACP on the map. We'll be discussing a lot in the next hour, and I want to ask your questions. So if you are watching along with us, please put your questions in the YouTube text chat. And if you see me checking my phone, just know I'm checking for uh, those messages and those questions and not, um, not playing any games. Um, AJ, welcome. Thank you so much for being here. And um, I just want to start off by saying that I was super into the book. I'm super, um, I'm not really a history history geek, but I I love history. And I love the way that you tell the story. It's much better than any history class I've ever had. Um, So let me me just start with the first question I have is just around the title, Mm -hmm. White Lies and the Darkest Secret. And um, I thought it was this amazing play on... You know, at one point in the book, you talk about Walter's house being called the White House and this idea that his last name was white. He presented as white, but that there's this idea that there may be the lies that Walter tells or these about the lies of um, the little white lies of America. Or is this about lynching? Just how did you come up with this title?
1: Well, firstly, Cheryl, let me just say I'm honored to be on this stage with you. And I'm very proud. The work you do is so vital and so important to the city of San Francisco and to all of us. So thank you. Um, The title came to me in the shower, in the bathtub, as all the titles of all of my books have. Uh, I was worried about it. Sort of a dangerous title, because when you uh, use the term white lies, you know, people thought, well, this could be a book about, you know, uh, uh, you know, a a fiction mystery. It could be um, about um, a romance. It could be anything. Um, But really, when you start to think about as you go through this book and you're reading it, you realize that the main character is someone who lies a lot. Um, But he lies mostly uh, until you get to the end of the book, mostly for good reasons, because he is a person who identifies as black and has white skin. He calls himself the enigma of a black man inside a white body. So throughout the first half of this book, you see this man lying. Um, because he 's passing as white as an undercover an investigator, later in the book, you realize that this man is so extraordinarily ambitious, so ambitious uh, you find him he finds himself um, almost unwittingly lying um, uncontrollably
0: yeah I, I I appreciate that the 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 kind of gradual recognition of what 's going on in that space and and that and even just you saying this just now, this idea that he was lying for the good, right? Like going in and that in some ways by passing, he was, you know, playing into the lie and the mindset of having folks think that he was a white person. I mean, I know you have a a picture of Walter, which I, I kept like trying to look at it and figure out, you know, Why or how was he able to pass as white? And and he does. He looks white. And and you go, you talk about through the book that you, you know, no one ever really, has anyone seen his birth certificate? I just keep wondering, like, what's, what is that space and place of, like, looking at him and folks who knew him accepted him as white, but people who didn't, I mean, accepted him as black, but people who didn't saw him as white?
1: Well, um, it's imperative that people understand just the very basic information about who this person was, and a lot of that has to do with what he looked like. So um, this is Walter White when he's about 20 years old, and he identified as black. He grew up in a family where both of his parents were of the last generation of, uh, of slaves who could talk about the slavery era um, from memory. So both of his parents were born into enslaved families. Um, Walter was born looking like this. He went to a black school went to a black church he graduated from all black atlanta university and this is his graduating photo i think this is a really important photo um because you can see him he's all the way on your right if you're viewing this uh this picture i actually got incredibly um the only person from walter's actual family that i could find was a woman named rose palmer who lived in Atlanta, like where Walter was from. She was 92 years old, and not only did she supply me this photo, but she was able to figure out how to get the photo, scan it, and email it to me, and she's 92. And I was so thankful that she did that. She, I interviewed her as well. Um, but maybe, you know, I think it's important that people understand how does somebody who is black, who identifies as black, look like this? And, you know, just briefly, you can imagine growing up as a young person and being... Im- it being impossible to, for it not to be understood just by what you look like, that your life comes from generations and generations mm-hmm. of childbearing through enslaved women who had no rights to their bodies and slave owners who were white and could operate with impunity. And so after generations and generations, you end up with uh, someone who looks like Walter. It, it's funny you say
0: that when I, I remember when my son, who's in his 20s now, when I was pregnant with my son, I went to the doctor and she said to me, just, I usually tell African American families, like, you just need to be prepared. You never know, um, you know, what your child may look like when they come out. And my son, even though both of his parents were black was born with blonde hair and blue eyes. And so it was, you know, he, he was, um, when he was born that the doctor said, uh, Oh, all he needs is a surfboard. Cause he had blonde hair and blue eyes. And that was my great grandfather. And so my great grandfather, the same. So the story, I think, resonates in so many different ways with this idea of, as you say, the over generations and over time. But the idea that he made the conscious decision you talk about in the beginning of the book, that that story that becomes mythical about at that point where he determined that he would that he didn't want to be on the other side of that, that he wanted to be um, strong in, in being a black person and not this, um, fighting the, the whiteness that was outside his door.
1: That's absolutely true. So um, you're referring to this moment. It's in the first chapter of the book. You know, Walter, he's 12 years old in the first chapter, and his father is a mail carrier, and he goes to school every day, and then he goes on his father's rounds with him every day after school, and he witnesses the beginning of the Atlanta race ride of 1906. And this riot was vicious. It was reported in newspapers all over the world, uh, in France and Germany. And I found all these newspaper articles about it that were contemporaneous, like the news made it that far at that time, which was a big deal. Mm-hmm. Um, but Walter experienced it firsthand. And so he describes in his own, you know, actually in his memoirs, uh, what it was like to witness seeing black people be killed by white people at that Age And there's a moment in the book where uh, he's on the second floor of his home and he's with his father and he's looking out on this crowd of white people who are approaching their home with torches intent on burning the house down because they believed that this home was too nice for a black family to live in. And here's Walter seeing this happening. He's standing and watching this group approach his home and he realizes the irony that they look no different than he is. But he comes to this realization that this is wrong. And that he, he says, I know I, in that moment, I knew which side I was on. And from that moment, not only did he identify as black, but he identified as a crime fighter.
0: Yeah. That, that resolve to say that he was going to like move through and do that work. Um, And so all of this for me is also this, do you consider yourself a historian? Like this rich history that you're, Unfolding and the research that must have gone into it Do you love history to be able to even just I can't even imagine how much time did it take for you to to do? This research to put the book together
1: years and years and years and hours and hours and hours um, I it's funny the term historian is an interesting um, Term because some people say you can't claim you're a historian unless you have a PhD and I was in a PhD program But it wasn't even history But I decided, actually, when I was six years old that I was going to write books, actually. And I still have. (laughs) I wrote a book about a racehorse called Thunder, and I still have it. But I decided my first year of graduate school that I wanted to write biography, and I wanted to write history, and I wanted to write about New York. Hmm. And um, most of this book is that. And so I feel like it's been all these years brewing. But I, I will say, because you asked, it's not an easy thing to do, to wake up and and create this stuff because you have to de- put all of your senses and all of your mind into the past for yeah. hours and hours every day. And sometimes it's fun and sometimes it's terrifying. Yeah, it's, um, I mean, you must
0: be extremely disciplined because the ability, like I find myself just reading and trying to like, it, you, you go down a rabbit hole, I'm sure. Like as soon as you uncover one piece, you want to go to the next and just get more understanding of where it's coming from.
1: That's true. And one of the things I always do when I pick up a book like this, I always like before I start reading and I look it over. Am I going to read this book? I look at the end notes and you can tell so much about a book from the end notes. Did the author do the work? Mm. Um, And I think if you really want to get inside someone's head, someone who lived in the past and to bring to life those times, you have to look under every. Um, every stone. And something that, incredible that happened with this book was that I started writing this. Um, I wanted to write this book uh, and I went to find out if there was enough material for a book. I looked at Walter's papers, Walter White's papers at Yale. That's where they are. Mm-hmm. And I found it, this incredible treasure trove of stuff. And right then, as I was really starting to write the pandemic hit, and I was like, how am I going to do, do all this research and travel around? And I found out that the NAACP uh, uh, papers, and I'm saying that's allowed because people should be able to explore this. They're free. You can sign up for a library card at the New York Public Library, and you have access to these papers, and you can search them by database. Um, and there's millions and millions and millions of fascinating documents.
0: Well, that's what I was going to... That was one of my questions, because the, the talking about the crisis and all of the other papers as well, like... Are they all in New York library? Like the, you talk about the um, the the paper from Marcus Garvey or you talk about the Pulitzer mm-hmm. paper, all of these different papers where you were uncovering that I was wondering to myself. I'm like, oh, my goodness, these are real stories. This isn't where someone says that they think that there was an article like you actually found these articles and, and quote them.
1: That's true. Just even like for example, in the first chapter, when I'm talking, when Walter's talking about the Atlanta race riot that he experienced, it's not hard these days through the technology we have it's, it, um, to be able to read the Atlanta newspapers from that very specific day. Um, something called ProQuest. Everything is database now, and so people like me can produce books like this with more research faster. Um, it used to be if you wanted to find a newspaper article, you would go to the library, which might take time. You would find the index of the specific newspaper. Excuse me. You would have to find the person you were looking for. Right. And then they would tell you what uh, day that person was mentioned. Then you'd have to look at uh, go get the microfilm. Oh, my gosh. And look the at microfiches. <laughs> now you can do it instantly. Instantly.
0: That that. You mentioned the 92-year-old woman. So how do you, as a part of this, so one is this research that you do in the libraries, the, the other is around people and the storytelling and um, the passing down of information. How do you find this 92-year-old woman?
1: Um, in that case, I actually contacted the NAACP in Atlanta. And the president returned my email, and he just gave me her phone number. <laughs> it was instant. <laughs> I, was, I just got lucky. Wow. Um, most of the books I've written, all but one, take place relatively far in the past, all in the 20th century. And so I've never been put in a position where, actually I did, the first book I wrote, I was in a position where if I didn't get all of these interviews, I couldn't write the book. And that was terrifying to be able to to have to rely on other people for my own uh, ability to get the job done. But this stuff, um, you just hope that the material exists because you know if you're dogged enough, you can find it.
0: Yeah. So I I appreciate it. I found myself um, during that time, it was really easy for it seems like people to disappear into oblivion. So you talk about, um, you know, his wife and you talk about his siblings and you talk about even um, Shalady, is that his?
1: John Shalady, yes.
0: You know, kind of just disappearing. And so the storytelling just made me want to know more and more about each of the the people. And so as you were... Doing this, and as I was looking through it, so much of it, you talk about New York and I think about the different pieces of the um, the one thousand nine hundred and nineteen riot, and then you which was Chicago, but then you talk about the Harlem riot of one thousand nine hundred and thirty five and what piqued my interest in that is i 'm a huge fan of langston Hughes okay, and so all of the things that where you 're talking about Langston and you 're talking about these different pieces and I was trying to figure out from the thousand nine hundred and thirty five riot, which you talk about and Walter being involved in going out and even the connection with the different people. Um, I just thought about, well, he wrote his book, The Dreamkeeper, mm-hmm. and that was released in 1932. But then you also talk about the end of the Renaissance, yes. right? Like the death of the Renaissance and how that, how that is captured and, and, and Walter's role in the Renaissance. Like as you tell this story, I really feel like there is a huge connection to Walter and the Renaissance. And and is that
1: what you uncover in this Story and Let me answer that question this way. And this is, to me, if you really sum up, you, what makes his life story so extraordinary is that every major racial incident or movement during his entire adult lifetime, he was at the center of it. Yeah. So whether it was... Being part of the Harlem Renaissance or being posing as a white man and in investigating these horrific incidents like Tulsa, like the Red Summer of 1919 and the Marion lynchings of 1930, um, but also um, in politics. And uh, he's at the center of all of it. And this is something that the New Yorker said, actually, in their review of it, is that really when you boil this guy's story down, it is the story of race in America during his lifetime. From 19, basically, when he comes of age uh, in 1917, up to the time that he dies in 1955, so he lives l- long enough to to uh, see Brown versus Board of Education, mm-hmm. and um, was you know at the center of all of this stuff right up until the time he died. And so
0: much of it to me parallels current affa- current events, current affairs. When you talk about you know how long it's taken for the anti lynching law you know, what you just so much of this story, I felt like I just was not keyed in to lynching so much of the story where you talk about the investigations and the work that he's done there.
1: That's the number one thing I hear. And, you know, we can get to the point like you who was Walter White. You could say, well, he was the most influential civil rights leader of his time. So why do people not know about him today? And why is so much of what this is in this book that nobody knows about? People have heard of Tulsa, but right. have they heard of the Red Summer of 1919? Have they heard of a woman named Mary Turner? Have they were, heard of the Phillips County Massacre? All of these things that Walter experienced, investigated, um, it's, it's, it's in his life story. Yeah. So,
0: Well, I, you say that, like I will say for me, the, the, um, the pregnant woman, Mary Turner. Mary Turner. That to me, I I just, I could, the way you wrote it, I could picture it. And it just brought so much of this, like how insane it was, the, the life and the reality and what people have normalized in that behavior. James Cameron, that story, another one, you know, like as you are doing this and you're like, how are you taking care of yourself through this too? It's a lot to unpack and see.
1: Well, we'll get to that in a minute, but, um, one of the things that i wanted to do sometimes I, when i'm thinking i stare off into space yeah. <laughs> so i apologize oh no no it's totally fine one of the things that i wanted to do was to make people feel i wanted them readers readers are going to get angry when they read the book and there's moments when you're going to feel deep sadness i had to be very 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 careful of what goes in and what didn't go in because there were moments where the story gets really gruesome. Mary Turner is the obvious one where there's so much more that could have gone into this book. And I was like, that's gratuitous. We have to leave this out. What we need to do is make the reader understand what Walter was feeling, what Walter White was feeling when he found her unmarked grave. It was marked by a whiskey bottle empty with a cigar sticking out of the top. And that was the story of Mary Turner. And if it wasn't for Walter White, nobody would have ever heard of it. And, you know, because hopefully um, people read the book, you know, uh, there is a monument to Mary Turner in a very rural place where very few people have been, um, where, she, where she passed away.
0: But I do hope people will read the book because I think that there is so much loss, and I, I appreciated the, the idea that, um, you know, Walter didn't get to necessarily um, see the impact of Uh, Emmett Till and the movement that happened there. But so much of what was able to happen with Emmett Till, I do believe is based on the foundation of it is what you, you talk about in the book. Um, I think about um, Isaac Woodward and that story, which is another really gruesome one. Um, When you think about what, but there's a line you talk about that says um, that it took his blinding to open the eyes of America to this darkest secret.
1: That's that's absolutely true. And um if people haven't heard of who Isaac Woodard is today, they should. Um, and so much of what we experience in our newspapers today, um, George Floyd and Black Lives Matter, all, all of that is coming from somewhere. Mm-hmm. And I think there's a really positive element of this book, I hope, and the story of Walter White. And that when he was dying uh he was dying of of the uh, he was having these heart attacks he knew he was dying and he wanted to finish this last book and it's a very positive book an uplifting book and it's talking about all of these things that happened during his lifetime and all of the stuff all the progress that had been made jackie robinson playing baseball He, he talked about the fact that in this last book it was such a testament to the progress that had happened in america that in this last book, which was called How Far the Promised Land with the question mark on the end, that he didn't have to devote a chapter Mm. to lynching in this book. Um, And in between the time he dies and the time the book is published, the Emmett Till horrible thing happened. And so there's so much to realize, you know, one of the things maybe we'll talk about is the whole idea of federal anti-lynch law. This is something that Walter uh, fought for his entire life. One of the things that made him very famous, one of the things that landed him on Time magazine cover when he was still a young man, and that law, the federal anti-lynching law, finally passed the Senate two weeks ago, all these years later. Well, that
0: I, I definitely want to spend time there because there are a couple other things that you put in the, the book. One is around lynching and legislators, right? Like that lynchers and legislators. And the other one was around... Um, I believe it was um, pulpits and politics or something of that Mm -hmm. nature and how we really had allowed this, this blending of um, the government and religion in a way that allowed and okayed lynching. And I I just appreciated the tenacity of Walter, regardless of whatever his ambitions were, Mm -hmm. the fact that he continued to show up, you know, you know, every decade or so knowing that a filibuster could potentially derail the efforts around the lynching law. And here it is that he died in what year? 1955. 55. And here we are in 2022 before it actually finally happens.
1: It's like uh, pushing the stone up the mountaintop and then it arrives. But um, one of the things you mentioned just made me think about something about Walters that he woke up the, He was, I think if he was alive today, Walter White would have been diagnosed as manic um, and many other things. (laughs) But one thing about him was he was incredibly ambitious. Um, He could be very manipulative, um, but he was ambitious and he was determined. And his focus of what he wanted to achieve in his lifetime never wavered. And that was he was often criticized in, in his lifetime a lot by the black community, because he lived a double life. He was very in touch with high society, you know, white high society, white powerful politicians, white novelists and and, and artists. So he lived this double life, and a lot of the times um, it got him in trouble. But his goal never changed, and that was we have to get rid of the color line in America.
0: But that that perseverance, that persistence, I think yes manic and and i could just when he when he talked about writing the first novel in like a matter of a week or so or two weeks like that ability to push through and be focused but to a to a cause right
1: that's exactly what I'm trying to say, yes.
0: Yeah, so I think that that's the, the piece that really resonated with me, right? Like that he was, uh, and I think this is the challenge that we face in society with nonprofits and community-based organizations or social justice movements. Do you have to take a vow of poverty or do you have to take a vow of um, struggle in order to do the right thing and to advance things? And I appreciated um, how you really spelled out too that it's not always as clean as folks think. I I appreciated the, the pointing out around art Mm -hmm. and the intellectuals and the roles that those folks play and that those are in and of themselves. When you talk about James Weldon Johnson and his conversations with Walter and in some ways I feel like Walter was mentored by James Weldon Johnson to develop the society um, relationship and world that he
1: created. Absolutely. And it was James Weldon Johnson who, if people don't know who he is, I was fascinated by this man. To me, he was like, if you were to say, you know, the old saying, if you could have lunch with anybody who would be, James Weldon Johnson would be high on the list. He was just the most admirable. One of my favorite parts of writing this book was the scene where he's retiring. He had this amazing career and he dedicates, he's like, it wouldn't mean anything. He's just like, my wife is the most important thing. And just makes me think of what I saw in the Oscars last night, but we don't need to talk about that. (laughs) Um, But James Welton Johnson was Walter's mentor, and one of the things that he taught Walter White was that um, the important— how did he say it? Um, You cannot judge a race of people or a nation of people by the most powerful or the richest. Mm. You judge a nation or a race on the literature it produces— and that's really what put the fire under Walter to become. He saw this renaissance begin to blossom in Harlem in the 1920s, and he really wanted to be part of it.
0: Yeah, I mean, the way you tell the story, I wanted to be there. I wanted to be in those rooms. You talk about the, the music, you talk about the spoken word artist, and, um, and the authors, the writers. And, and I think part of that ambition for Walter to want to write, don't you think, was also because of the people he was in company with?
1: People like Langston Hughes. One of the things I, I, I'm a fan of Langston Hughes. I'll just say this as an aside. As yeah. Langston Hughes, you can pick up any book of poetry and hand it to a person of any age. You can hand it to a seven-year-old and they will read it and enjoy it. You can hand it to an 80-year-old. Yeah. But um, Walter threw these legendary parties. And you talk about wanting to be in the room. I wanted to go to those parties so bad because he would mix the cream of the crop of the most fascinating people White avant-garde Greenwich Village, Black Harlem all came together at these parties in Walter's uh, apartment. And they would sing and dance all night and then they would go out and go clubbing. And uh, it wasn't all there's a lot of parts of his life that are dark, but there was a heck of a lot of fun, too.
0: Yeah, definitely amazing. If you can call it that balance. And when you talk about the the dark pieces, the. Again, we come back to this ambition, but I just also in some ways fearless because he went into these places, even if it was to kind of move the work or to um, elevate his name and his career. It was dangerous.
1: That's right. Um, So Walter, he he starts at the NAACP in the winter of 1918, and it's his 12th day there when he reads about um, the murder of a man named James McElheron. And he convinces everybody at the NAACP in New York in the office that he's going to go down there to rural Tennessee and pose as a white man and get the facts. And they're against it because they realize it's very dangerous. So uh, Walter White goes down there. He dons this persona. He becomes a traveling salesman with the Exilento Medicine Company, which I believe he just entirely fabricated. And he goes into this rural community, and he gets the facts. And he writes an article about it, and it causes a sensation. And this is his first month at the NAACP. He's only 25. He's just a kid. He's, he's an assistant. And he's like, I'm onto something. This can be valuable, but I can also make a name for myself doing this. And he did. So he conducted over 40 of these investigations. But every time he did it, he was becoming more and more famous, which meant it was more likely that his identity would be revealed Right. And he knew w- what would happen to him. It wouldn't be good. It, it wouldn't just be killing. It would be something far worse.
0: Right. And when he asked um, Flossie Bailey yes. about, you know, should I come as the, uh, the secretary or should I come uh, as the investigator? Right. This, now he's in this place where how do I show up and, and how do I move through space?
1: Firstly, thank you for reading the book so closely. <laughs> thank you, Sheriff. Thank
0: you. I, I have to tell you, like this was not this is an assignment that I would take on any given day. This book just had me. I, I'm sure I will be forcing other people to read it and using it as um, a conversation around social justice, because the idea that he did all of this work and because of his transgressions later in life that he would almost be erased is unbelievable.
1: I agree with you um, that Flossie Bailey, uh, just a, an, um, another just amazing character. Uh, it's hard to sort of tell people who are listening or watching in the brief moment we have why she's so amazing. But she lives in this town called Marion mm-hmm. uh, in Illinois. And something very terrible happens there. And she has uh, started this N- NAACP branch. There's something like 32 people. Uh, it's not very powerful. And there's a, something terrible that happens in her town. and She calls Walter White in the office. And it's incredible because All of the documentation and communications between them exist. There's telegrams, telegrams. This is happening. This is happening. An hour later, an hour later. So you have these communications. And she's begging Walter White to come. But by this time, Walter has become chief executive of the NAACP, and he can no longer go undercover safely. And so he asks her, should I come as a white person? Or as a black person, as black person, white person would be an undercover investigator or black would be as the head of the most you know, powerful and militant uh, civil rights organization in existence at that time. Yeah,
0: I just that part for me where but but her response, right? Like we need you to come bearing the weight of the office.
1: Well, what she says is, well, you're right. We need you to come with as much power as you can bring. But then she says. Don't tell them you're black because they won't let you stay at the hotel. Yeah. And so he stays at the hotel. <laughs> right.
0: So come in the name of the office but don't don't be don't be black in the process. Exactly. Amazing. But it, this is what I'm saying about the book in terms of the history and all the pieces because there's the, the richness of Walter that you lay out but then there are all these other characters that you, you know, people real life people that you, you elevate and you amplify and it's not just about the history of Walter White but it's this history of civil rights and the people who whether it was 20 people in this town or 200 in another that really put their lives on the line to advocate and to fight for, for justice
1: I agree with you And thank you for saying that. Um, I'm I'm going to go slightly off on a tangent, but look. The root paradox of all political systems and all societies in the world is that what's good for the society as a whole cannot be good for every individual in them. And what's good for an individual can't always be what's best for the society. And I find that the most redeeming characters in history the people that I respect the most that I want to write about and just live my life with are those people who understand that they're part of something greater um, and that they want to make the society better for everyone.
0: Well, I mean, but that, I feel like you drop those tidbits throughout because again, if I go back to James Cameron and when he comes running into his house and his mother's asking what happened, right? And the humanity of The mom, as they are taking him out, where she's like, Lord, you know, have mercy, basically like pleading. And that in some way for me, that prayer is honored. Right. And that when he meets the sheriff and the sheriff says, you know, I apologize. And my son might've been out there. Yes. That you're, you're really showing that there are, even in the midst of all of this, that there are redeeming qualities. There are people out there.
1: That's absolutely right. And uh, those are the most moving moments of those beacons of goodness that you find in the darkest of places, uh, like that sheriff you you, you just mentioned. Um, yeah, I cried. I cried when I wrote that because like, yeah. you know, I found I didn't cry when I wrote it. I found I cried when I found it in the research, when I found it's James Cameron himself remembering what that sheriff said to him. Yeah. He had just survived something for those who haven't read the book yet he had survived something unimaginably horrific, and he yeah. lived to tell, And but he was rendered, the, of all dignity, was gone. Yeah. And there was a person there who reached out to help him. Th- that,
0: that's, I felt that in that story, and that's why, for me, I, I didn't believe that there was going to be redemption, and I, I kept thinking about that mother's prayer, and yet somehow at the end of it, it's, it's honored. And so I appreciate and respect the storytelling yeah. and the, the respect of the lives and the people in those. And in the same way, you know, the, um, I, I laugh and, and kind of giggle to myself at Orson Welles saying, you know, I see you, right? Like this, the way that people came together and to support, um, that was the job of Walter White that you highlight, that he brought people into the conversation that otherwise would not have been involved.
1: I agree with you. And again, like every single important event that happened in this fear, he was part of. And you just reminded me of the story of Marian Anderson. So hopefully people out there know the story of Marian Anderson. It's 1939. She's a very famous black singer in America and in Europe. And she's going to give this concert. And uh, I'm actually forgetting where it was going to be. It was in, in Washington, D.C., Um, at an organization much like the Commonwealth Club, but much different than the Commonwealth Club, and that this organization refused to allow her to sing. And there's Walter White, um, who's instrumental in creating this concert for her at the foot of the Lincoln Memorial, which has been often called one of the most important musical events in the nation's history. And, you know, he's not the focal point of that chapter, but he's there, and so that story can be told in, you know, in the telling of his story.
0: Yeah, I think that that is um for me that piece just is symbolic of so many pieces that are dropped in there. So first and foremost the the idea that Marian Anderson sang there, and that he helped to coordinate and orchestrate that. So, to your point, that he's really involved in so many of these kind of monumental. And then when you talk about A. Philip Randolph and you talk about yes. the March on Washington, and I was just like, you know, this this was developed, and the concept was developed many years before the march that we all know. Right. And and so I'm just like, he was so ahead of his time.
1: He was. And we can tell that story. So it's the beginning. Okay. Firstly, I have two more pictures because we're getting yeah. deeper into his life. And oh my gosh. this is what he looked like later in life. At this point, he's a, a political powerhouse. This is the late 1930s. And these are the two most important individuals that he brought into the NAACP in the late 1930s. Uh, on my right is, of course, Roy Wilkins, who became the chief executive of the NAACP for many years after Walter died in 1955. And that's Thurgood Marshall, who, of course, uh, Thurgood Marshall, of course, is the first black Supreme Court justice, but at this time was just beginning to lay the foundation for education cases in America. Um, And then there's this one, and that's Walter in 1947. So uh, that's Eleanor Roosevelt awkwardly towering over Walter White and next to him is Harry Truman and this is so when he when the Marian Anderson concert happens and yes. it's such a success uh, Walter White realizes that there is no more dramatic place to hold an event than the foot of the Lincoln Memorial and so he in 1947 he, he cements this very very important relationship with Harry Truman and convinces Harry Truman to give this speech at the foot of the Lincoln Memorial and this is them walking Walter White is on my left, holding his speech in his hand because he gives the speech, and then he says, "Ladies and gentlemen, the president of the United States," and then Truman gives his very historic NAAC speech. But I, I sort of brought us up off topic, but yeah. because no, I appreciate that because we're talking. I just wanted people to see w- what he looked like later in life.
0: Well, if you go back to the other, um, the other one, I just again, just these three amazing men who were doing this work. And and you think about each in their own right with Roy Wilkins and coming from taking a pay cut, essentially, and coming from um, being a journalist and Thurgood Marshall having the opportunity to be mentored and to come up through the ranks in a similar way that Walter had and all of them leaving this amazing mark. And yet Walter, whose name fewer people would know, really brought both of them into... The work in some
1: way he did, and he really offered Third Good Marshall uh, um, a venue and an avenue, and funding, mm-hmm. uh, an introduction to very important people, to create a pathway for Third Good Marshall to became all that Third Good Marshall became. And you know, something I was mentioning earlier, some of these chapters, Walter Walter White is like he's at the center of it because he's the book's about him. But really, what it is is it's illuminating everything that's going on in this sphere, such as the rise of Thurgood Marshall, yeah. the rise of Roy Wilkins. Um, I also just think this is an extraordinarily dramatic photograph.
0: <laughs> it is. I, I love this picture. I just. I. It, but again, it just pulls you in. And as you said, this. It's not even just Thurgood Marshall. Like I have a list of people that I'm now like I need to go do more research on because you've really brought. This story along to show, um, yes, that Walter was a part of this, but he also recognized talent in the same way that James Weldon Johnson saw something in him. He saw something in all these other people. Exactly. And elevated them. And so I, another person is, the, is Mary um, Ovington. Is that?
1: Yes, the fighting saint.
0: <laughs> you know, just again, all of these people that invested in him. Yes. Yes that yes. saw something in him that made it possible for him to really grow and thrive.
1: I should just explain because I loved Mary White Ovington, her character. She wrote two small autobiographies, okay. um, that are really interesting. She wasn't not a brilliant writer, but, <laughs> um, extro- her dedication to a cause. So she saw, here is this white woman who is a founding member of the NAACP and was on the board for a long, long time. And, um, Walter and the others, they called her the fighting saint. So she was 20, 30 years older than them, even more than that, than Walter White was. But she took him under his wing, under her wing, saw that he was valuable to a cause. And her dedication, she had dedicated her entire life to civil rights. After seeing Frederick Douglass speak, that's all it took for her. She never married because activism, um, that was her spouse.
0: Yeah, I, I... I love that toward the end and after she had, you know, kind of retired, that she was able to still take joy and pleasure in the work that Walter was doing.
1: Absolutely. That's what binded them all together is that all of these people at the NAACP at that time. Actually, that's not true because in the 1930s, maybe we can touch on that. um, The Depression really Mm -hmm. crushed the NAACP and many other things. And uh, there was some quite a few office politics. Yeah, Um, yeah,
0: well, yeah, and I'm again that those are amazing things for me in the story that unearth that this understanding the duality or mutual, you know, like the multiplicity of who people are right that we're not only you know that. Um, W.E. DeBose was not just an academic, an intellectual, an amazing scholar, but he was a person with characteristics and personalities that, you know, maybe we wouldn't all understand, but that he was genius at the same time, you know?
1: Absolutely. There's something, there's a term that I remember that I learned when I was a kid. It was actually lyric from a song, and I can't remember from who it was, but it always stuck with me. And the term was the cancer of my intellect. And what that means is that brilliant people rarely are without fault of character f- flaws. All of them. Walter White had many flaws, egotistical, self-centered, but dedicated to the cause. And Du Bois, same thing. Yeah. Genius, the first black Harvard educated Ph.D. Um, to this day, you cannot study anything about race in college without reading his work. Um, uh, and yet, yes, character flaws. Yeah,
0: yeah. I, um, there's so much that that, that I wanted to um, unpack and just, but some of the other lines and quotes from the book that really resonated me with me was this idea of where school might mean a creaky church with a single teacher for an entire community. And so this work of, Um, Walter, which was started with education and then would, in so many ways, as you talk about in the book, end with education and Brown versus Board of Education, but that the work of like, how do we build and how do we create space for people? And that, that sentence really, for me, resonates with this fight to make sure that they had equal access. He was fighting what brought him into the fold, right, was this idea of having um, a class not be canceled
1: absolutely uh, there's nothing obviously more important uh, to any culture and the success of younger generations in education I mean mm-hmm. that goes without saying and this is something that we still struggle with in this country you can I've moved around there this country quite a bit and you can see you know where schools are hurting yeah it's not hard just have to look you know yeah. And uh, but the important thing at that time, Walter's whole trajectory, how he really got involved in the NAACP to begin with, was because the the, the city of Atlanta, where he lived, was going to cancel seventh grade to build a new high school, uh, seventh grade for black students to build a new high school for white students. And the the, the point of it is it really exposed very, very clearly that the whole idea of The law, which was separate but equal, Plessy versus Sir Ferguson, 1892, the law that sanctioned segregation was called separate but equal, equal. which meant they should be equal. There might be a black school and a white school. How could you say that? This is the obvious hypocrisy of it that Walter recognized at that young age. How could you say they're separate but equal if there are school for white kids and no school for black kids? That's it.
0: It's. First off, I want to remind folks to if you have questions to put them in the chat, we are checking for that. And then that point of separate but equal and the the idea of just questioning the status quo is what Walter continued to do. Um, and so when you, you talk about um, the war and him going and, and coming back and saying like, Black soldiers are coming back and not being treated with the dignity that they deserve. So he just was always questioning how we operated. And I appreciate that he questioned all the way up to the president. Like there was he treated the president at the same um, that he would any person on the street.
1: He did. And, you know, really. He realized there's, if You you could say this, that the first half of this book is really about Walter White and his undercover, invest, living a double life as an, a white undercover investigator and a black writer in the Harlem Renaissance. The second half is really about politics and Walter living a double life in, in politics. What um, he realizes is that um, all roads led to the White House for him. And this was during the 1930s when not everybody agreed, like a lot of people really Bought into the communist ethos at that time because they were so people were so poor and so why not share the wealth? Um, but Walter wanted to be friends with presidents. He wanted to be influential in the Oval Office. That was his goal, uh, and and obviously, it worked. Um, how are we doing on time? Because there's one thing I want to touch on. We've
0: got uh, 18 minutes. Okay,
1: we're good. We're good.
0: So you talk about that wanting to know presidents, and I would say, the The thing that like the aha moment for me at some point in the book is really his political savvy. Right. And his and much like we've been doing and been hearing about over the last few years around the power of the black vote and how he really wanted, you know, the black community to understand that they could sway or impact um, political decisions. And that moment um, at the Democratic National Convention Right. Which I'm like, I don't know how I didn't know this. I was this was news to me. But that moment when you can see kind of the the splitting and the turning of the tide where black votes are no longer automatically going to Republicans and kind of this this evolution of kind of where we are now. And I feel like we're now where Walter would say again, you know, don't take votes for granted. Right. Like, That's Don't just assume the black people are going to vote for Democrats. But I think that his he just was. So forward thinking
1: I think you're right, and there's this moment this this eureka moment he has uh, another character like you talk about there 's all these characters that just show up. Clarence Darrow to <laughs> me is a fascinating character, um, and Walter recruits him against all odds, the most famous attorney on the planet to help represent the sweet family who 's locked up in Detroit, another of these stories. but it was really this Eureka moment with, where Clarence Darrow. Um, gives a speech. Walter convinces him to come down and gives the speech in a Harlem, in a church in Harlem. And this is when uh, the book sort of transitions from the first half of the book was about these investigations and into Walter wanting to become a political powerhouse. Uh, Clarence Darrow gives the speech, which which everybody in the church really, they get upset about. Um, But Walter, he's like, that's genius. And what Clarence Darrow says is, ever since the Civil War, Black Americans vote who are allowed to vote because they're not allowed to vote in the southern states. But if they're allowed to vote and they can register to vote, they're always going to vote for the Republican candidate because that's the party of Lincoln. So ever since the Civil War, this has been going on for decades. And Clarence Darrow says they're not going to do anything for you. If you just give them your vote, they're not going to do anything. But if you say you're going to have to do something to earn this vote, you can hold the balance of power in several communities. And Walter's like, yes. And that's the strategy he uses to go into politics.
0: It just, for me, it was mind blowing when he actually like continues to build on that and actually sees it happen. Like he gets to see it happen and he gets to celebrate that moment. And I think the other moment for me was when he's talking with Eleanor Roosevelt and with, um, the president and with his, the president's mother. And, you know, and even then he's like curried favor with these folks in a way that the president isn't even sure that he's got favor in his own household. You know?
1: That's how manipulative <laughs> and clever Walter White could be. So the uh, meeting you have this, he has this very dramatic meeting um, in which he's trying to get in to see FDR and FDR refuses to see him. And um, he recruits Eleanor to help him. Because Eleanor was a civil rights activist. He actually convinces Eleanor Roosevelt to join the board of NAACP, um, which is a testament to how powerful it became during his lifetime, but also how mainstream the politics were. Um, So, yes, so so he finally, Eleanor helps him, gets this meeting in, and she's coached him on everything he should ask and everything he should say. So he starts asking FDR these questions, and FDR realizes what's going on, and his mother is there. And he, he turns to his mother and says, well, at least you blah, 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 blah. And she's like, no, nope, I agree with Walter White.
0: <laughs> so, I, I mean, the book is amazing and insightful. And as I said, I'm definitely going to be somewhere requiring someone to read it because it just it opens the mind to, um, first and foremost, this horrible history, this dark secret that you talk about. It, it also really calls into question um, these choices. And so I just keep going back to, um, you know, time magazine and other places saying he was Negro by choice. Yes. Right. And him talking about, you know, his outward a- appearance versus his, his spirit and his passion and his, his work, but that in some ways it also contributes to his erasure in some ways. Yes. Um, and so like, how do you wrestle with that? And as you, write this story like is the hope to to help people remember the work of walter white versus the
1: end of walter white i think all of the above and and this is the one point i think that i really wanted to make sure was understood in this conversation so thank you for bringing it up why don't people you know people watching this right now are saying if he was so important, why don't we know who he is? Anybody, if you say Walter White today, they think of Breaking Bad, the TV show, right? Uh, which is why we actually made sure to put Walter F. White in, on the cover of the book. So pe- otherwise people would make that mistake. Why don't people know who he is? And there's really two reasons. One is because he dies in, 19, in 1955. Mm-hmm. Right before the Montgomery bus boycott and the rise of Martin Luther King and all the new generation of powerful and brilliant civil rights activists. And um, there are no, there's no way in this new era of television, very important, that they are going to have a man with, who looked like Walter be the face, you know, of the foundation of their movement. That wasn't going to happen. And, of course, we know the other, if you read the book, you know what you did, you know the other reason why his legacy disappeared very quickly after his death. And because he was another character, he was a character who was deeply flawed. And in one way in particular, in which um, he was married to a black woman and had uh, black children um, and identified as black publicly and in many ways was the face of black power at at the end of his life but he had a secret and that he was secretly in love with a white woman and he knew if that secret got out it would shatter his reputation. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, that, I I am also hoping that we can get past that piece of it, that, you know, the conversations and the debates about his um, decision to leave his wife and to be with this other woman but that it doesn't really take away from all the work that was done that contributed to where we are today. Um, a, a question that we have is around now that the book is out, is there any story you wish you would have included or is there something that you, 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 you wish was still in that you were able to add to the book?
1: That's an excellent question. That's a very challenging question. There is one thing that pops in my mind. Um, and it, it only came up in my mind because somebody interviewing me asked about it. It's like, why didn't you include this. And uh, late in Walter's life, so we just addressed the fact that late in his life, he leaves his wife. Um, his reputation is shattered. Um, he becomes a figurehead. He's still the head of the NAACP, but he has no power anymore. People are very, very angry. His own children abandon him and refuse to talk to him. Um, but uh, oh, wait, what was your question? Oh, but at the same time, uh, something else kind of tricky happens. And Walter White had written an article for look magazine in which he talked about, um, he was a weekly newspaper columnist. He wrote a lot uh, for magazine. So he was constantly typewriter, blah, 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 blah. And so Walter White had written this article for look magazine in which he talks about the discovery of a cream that can change the color of a person's skin. And, um, the, the documentation shows that the editors of the magazine cut out large sections of it, and it, it upset people because it looked like he was um, advocating for that. Yeah. Um, and um, I I made this decision um, not to include it because I thought it was so unfair to him what had happened, and it would just, like, take away from— the work that he had done and the success that he had, and I just decided not to. So it's not in there. And if it, it wasn't there, it would be a paragraph. It wouldn't be more. But somebody uh, asked me, because somebody had read, it was very educated in the sphere and really knew, not that you're, but you understand, yeah. somebody had read, there's another biography written by a professor named Kenneth Jenkin that is very large and came out a long time ago. It's a very thorough book. And I read that book and um, asked why I had chosen not to include it.
0: So as you were talking, it made me think, like, how'd you come to this? Like what it, what made you say, I need to write about Walter White?
1: Well, um, Walter White appears as a minor character in the last four books I've written. So the Arsenal of Democracy, three, The Accidental President and Dewey Defeats Truman, all three of them. Um, and I first read about Walter White in my first year of graduate school. Many, many years ago. Um, but in these, every time I would come back to his story in my research, the story just kept getting more interesting, and I just couldn't figure out why nobody had written a book about him um, in recent years. Um, and I assumed that was because there wasn't enough source material. But when I went looking for the source material, oh, there was plenty. There was a lot, <laughs> more than enough. And so I just realized that this book had to be written. And I don't want—I don't want to say that you know people should read this book because it's a great book. People should read this book because I think people should know the story of Walter Francis White.
0: So another question, AJ: Were you able to connect, interview any of Walter's relatives? Are any of them following in his
1: footsteps? Okay, um, that's a great question. Rose Palmer is ninety-two years old, and I shared a picture that she shared with me, and she was. Walter's great niece. And I quote her in the book because she, when Walter's family life falls apart late in his life, uh, he helped her in some different ways. And she used to spend a lot of time in his home. And um, when I interviewed her, you know, she told me how devastated he was that his children late in his life refused to talk to him. Mm. Um, But she was his great niece. And so She became like a daughter to him in that short window of time before he died. And so my conversations were very moving. Um, The other answer is no, people didn't follow in his footsteps uh, that I know of. A couple of them, they were more likely to follow in their mother's footsteps because she had always wanted to be an actress on the stage. And Walter's oldest daughter, Jane White, um, she had some success with a career on the stage, I think later in films, too.
0: Did he have any grant? Did any of did his children have children?
1: I don't believe there's anybody left in the lineage that that I, I certainly couldn't find anyone. Um, what about Poppy? Uh, what is specifically about? Did she
0: have children? I mean, she had children. Did her children so
1: live to tell the story of? Not that I know of. She um, is a fascinating character, and that she um, she became a contemporary of Martha Stewart's. She was one of the earlier uh, television. Cooking people, wow. um, but she was a really interesting woman. She had a bunch of different children, um, and I ne- you know she, she appears not as much in the book until later at the end. And um, but the interesting thing about her is that she, her letters be- between them exist. Mm-hmm. And those were very helpful because they were a window into what their relationship was really like before Walter left his life, wife, and after. Wow. But also she wrote a book about him called The Gentle, the Gentle Knight. And that enabled me, th- there was a lot of scene setting in there. So I could really t- describe like the party where they met in great detail.
0: It's amazing. Let's see another one. if you had the opportunity to ask Walter a question, what would it be?
1: What do you regret most? Mm. Do you regret that one thing? Because I really think that if he hadn't left his wife mm-hmm. late in life, and, you know, the black community felt terrifically betrayed by him. Did would, did he regret that?
0: Let's see. And then from George Hammond, would Clarence Darrow's advice to not automatically vote Republican be applicable today if changed to not automatically vote Democrat?
1: Um, I can only answer that question subjectively. Um, I think there's that's certainly something that, People should explore. Um, It's certainly uh, a very interesting time to wake up and read the newspaper these days and see what's happening in Washington.
0: Yeah, I've just felt like across the board, to your point, that um, we're talking about voting rights. We're talking about political will and power, the power of black voters, um, the the anti-lynching law, education, and whether we're still, you know, have we actually progressed to full integration? There's so much in this book that is so relevant still today. And I think um, in many ways, Walter had a playbook for how to address some of the ills that we still wrestle with. I so much has changed, but so
1: much is the same. That's exactly right. <laughs> and, and there's so many things that are happening in our society today that are not new, that are shocking to people, but they're not new. Um all of that comes from somewhere. And, uh, it's another reason like Walter's story illuminates that. Yeah.
0: Well, I guess the last question that I will ask, because I just feel like in this era of which I'm sure Walter, he was so proud of like being featured on radio, which was new and all the, I I wonder, I just feel like this is, it's one of those things where people are that they say, you know, um, fact is stranger than fiction right that this idea will this be or could this be some netflix or movie i I just this is something i would totally watch because i keep trying to play it out in my mind and see the visual so
1: i've been asked that question before and i can't (laughs) honestly i can't because my brain is and is so attached to the the you know what's in the end notes the, um, so it's hard for me. It would be hard for me to visualize what it would look like on screen. But I'll tell you this. W- we could use a man like Walter White today, you know, and I know the work that you do is, is, is amazing. And there's so many people out there creating good in our communities. Um, Walter was uh, he was just one of those people who's not afraid of anything. And um, he was not afraid to make enemies. He was not afraid to, uh, do anything it took, even at his own, at the expense of his own reputation, um, to get society to the next place it needed to go.
0: Yeah. I mean, again, back to Langston Hughes, because I think about, you know, you talk about in the book, how Walter talked about the thirties being so challenging and so difficult and just aligning that to, um, the line again that talks about the end of the renaissance. And, um, I just keep going back to one of, um, Langston's poems that says, uh, hold fast to dreams for if dreams die, life is a broken winged bird that cannot fly. And I feel like Walter was always striving to fly, right? Even in those moments when his wing was clipped a little bit, he was determined, um, to keep going and keep fighting.
1: I think you're right. And, um, that's one of the reasons why the name of his second novel was called Flight. And um, if anybody's watching, if you like Langston Hughes, there's a great poem called The Ballad of Walter White. So Langston Hughes wrote this long, lyrical poem that really captures the essence of Walter's early life as an undercover investigator. And very surprisingly, given how grim some of that material is, in a very humorous way.
0: Well, I am definitely going to be spending my evening reading The Ballad of Walter White, because I'm going to be rereading this book over and over again. Thank you so much.
1: Cheryl, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you.
0: We've reached the point in our program where we have come to the end. Our thanks to A.J. Bame, author of White Lies, The Double Life of Walter F. White, and America's Dark Secret. We encourage you to pick up a copy of White Lies at your local bookstore. If you'd like to watch more programs or support the Commonwealth Club's efforts in making both virtual and in-person programming possible, please visit CommonwealthClub.org slash events. Thank you and take care. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you